we'll jump in. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for Mark and for Peter, whose words it seems like Mark was jotting down for us. Help us to get into that mindset and to uh, understand what it is that you taught them so long ago and what it is that we can glean from that and um, how it is that you want to teach us this morning. God, thank you for the fact that you are the living God, that you are, um, your, your word is fresh. There is nothing that you've said that is outdated that we can still glean from it today. God, we love you and praise you. Amen. All right, so we're jumping back into Mark 11. We'll do a little bit of review from last week in particular. So think back a whole seven days and see if you can remember why Bartimaeus's declaration of Jesus as son of David is so important. What is so profound about that title, that statement? going all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, right? Looking at the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to David. And that promise included three aspects, right? You mentioned the throne. What are the other two aspects of that promise? Do you recall? He would have a forever throne and a forever what? Yeah, kingdom and house or dynasty. So when you think the Davidic covenant, think uh, house, throne, and kingdom, or house, kingdom, and throne. And remember that those are forever. It's very clear. It's not ambiguous throughout, not just that passage, but other passages that are referencing the Davidic covenant, that this is an eternal physical covenant. So yes, um, going back to that covenant, David was promised he would have a son on the throne forever. And we looked at the fact that Solomon was partially in view in that covenant, right? Uh, referenced, I think, in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, uh, his iniquity, the, the iniquity of his son, and how that would play into this role. And so that was particularly in reference to Solomon. But there's uh, more in view, like there often is in, in prophecy. There's a, a dual fulfillment that's taking place. And so Jesus was also in view. And so we took a look at passages like this one in Jeremiah 23.5, which is after Solomon and still looking forward to the coming of the son of David. It says in Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And Bartimaeus comes on the scene, this blind beggar, and he realizes Jesus is that righteous branch. Jesus is the son of David. He's the one who is being, who has been raised up. And while everybody else is confused about who Jesus is, uh, Bartimaeus seems to be at least on the right path. All right. And what is notable about Jesus stopping Bart? Uh, Logan, that's what I decided to call your son for, for short. Since, Bart? Yeah, if we're going to name him Bartimaeus, you can call him oh, yeah. Bart. <laughs> I just been on screen there. <laughs> What's notable about Jesus stopping and talking to him? Anything? 
stopping and talking to people, right? I kind of forgot who Bartimaeus was. He's a blind man. A blind man on the side of the road. He's the one who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All right, well, it's understandable that we've grown accustomed to Jesus stopping and talking to people. Um, however, we should realize that that's still not normal, especially for him to stop and talk to a blind man. Remember that they were considered as lower class, lower society. And so for Jesus, this rabbi, this uh, higher class rabbi, to stop and talk to a blind man, first of all, is, uh, it's, it's different, right? It's not normal within that culture. And to add to that, um, remember Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He was on his way to the cross. He had a mission in front of him. This was why Jesus came, right? He came to go to the cross. Um, however, he didn't forego this blind beggar on the side of the street. Um, he still showed compassion on him, even though he had uh, quote-unquote bigger things at hand, right? All right, and then explain how the crowd's perception of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem compared to what was actually taking place. You guys recall the difference between what the crowd kind of looked around, they perceived, oh, this is what's happening, this is what's going on, and what was actually taking place, what Jesus was intending to portray in his entrance into Jerusalem. laying down their coats and their branches like they did for King Jehu, right? Like, come on in, let's establish you as the king. Come on in and depose Rome and establish your kingdom here on earth, uh, right here in Jerusalem. Let's do this now, right? That's what they were anticipating. Not just all the crowd, but the disciples even still had this in view in, the, in their minds as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And so before, what I read to you was Jeremiah 23, 5, talking about how God is promising to raise up a righteous branch. The next verse, Jeremiah 23, 6, says that in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So, again, we shouldn't be too harsh on them because those verses are, are right there together. That he's going to raise up this righteous branch. Bartimaeus realizes Jesus is that righteous branch of David. He is a son of David. And it's told right in that same passage that he will save Judah and Israel will dwell securely. They didn't see this big parenthesis, which is the church age. They didn't understand that there was a gap there. They're thinking, oh, this is all happening right now. Jesus is the Messiah. He is a righteous branch of David. He is the son of David. And therefore, he must be coming to, to rescue us and bring us this safety and security from everybody else. However, Jesus came lowly and mounted on a donkey. Um, Matthew adds this to his account in Matthew 21.5. And it's going back and quoting what we looked at last week as well. Zechariah 9.9, 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
shout in triumph. And, and they were doing all that, right? As Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, they were rejoicing and shouting. And it says, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. They had a different sort of salvation in mind, didn't they? They had this physical salvation from Rome rather than salvation from their sin and their issue with God. It says he is endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he wasn't coming in as a conquering king. He was coming in as a humble servant. He was coming in as a lamb rather than a lion, and the people weren't getting that. It it wasn't computing. That's yet to come, right? Jesus will, for sure, one day come back and uh, establish his physical kingdom on earth. And he will rescue Judah and Israel from all their enemies. But that's not what's taking place at the triumphal entry. Any other thoughts or questions about our study last week with Bartimaeus and the entry into Jerusalem? son of Timaeus, it's kind of redundant saying that his father was Timaeus. So, yeah, I think either his father was in a notable position of authority and power and influence in the city, or he once was. But yeah, that's not normal, right? That's a little bit different. Any other thoughts or questions on last week? All right. Well, let's jump into our text for this week. We're going to be covering quite a bit, actually, starting in verse 11 of chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the cursing of the fig tree. So I'll go ahead and read 11 through 14. It says that uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, so that in verse 11, that was the same day that he came into Jerusalem, right? Later on that night, that evening, is when he went in, took a glance over at the temple, and then he left because it was late. So verse 12, on the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And so uh, we see up there, the this is an anticlimactic resolution to verse 
of verse 11. And this really reiterates the purpose of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He wasn't coming in to set up his kingdom. He wasn't coming in to drive out the Romans. He came in and verse 11 says he went to the temple, took a look around, and then he went home to Bethany. Well, not home, but back to you know his hotel or his Airbnb, wherever he was staying, back in Bethany, because it was too late to handle anything at Jerusalem. He wasn't being, uh, you know, donned with a, a robe and a scepter and given a throne right then. So, what their expectation was is not matching up with what Jesus is portraying, what he was setting up to do. Um, so it's clear here that even the, the Son of Man um, gets, gets tired. He has to turn in at night. He has to go back. He has to take a, a break for a moment. Uh, after getting there and, and collecting his thoughts, seeing what it is that is at the temple and, and kind of preparing for what he's going to do the next day in going in and disrupting the temple, he goes back and uh, takes a break for a little bit. And in our passage today, our, our text today, we're going to be covering a lot in just a 24-hour period. So we're going to be looking at this cursing of the fig tree. We can really split it up into three different sections. Uh, the cursing of the fig tree on the way to the temple, and Jesus getting to the temple and, and cleansing the temple, and then returning to the fig tree. All this is going to take place just within a one-day period of time. So in looking at verses 12 through 14, why is it that, the, that people in our culture, in our society, tend to take issue with these verses? I'll go ahead and read them again as you guys ponder on that question. What is it that people take issue with in these verses, 12 through 14, when on the next day he, they had left Bethany and he became hungry, seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. What's different about that passage? Yeah, like, why is Jesus expecting fruit from this tree when it's not the season for figs, right? Well, what was the question? Wasn't it like, why do people from the world will have problems with figs Yeah. Yeah, does he can command the tree to get fruit? Yeah. Yeah, so it almost seems as if Jesus is portrayed as just being hangry, right? He's just, he's hungry and he's irrational and... He is expecting fruit from this tree, even when it says right there in the text that it wasn't the season for figs. And he's just, I have to sneeze really bad and it's not coming. <laughs> we get this kind of uh, view and perception of an, an angry, capricious Jesus, right? Who's just out of control. He's not thinking straight um, and not really having normal expectations of this tree when we're told that it's not the season for figs. He's kind of revealing his emotional instability, right? His wavering, unstable, ridiculous expectations. That's oftentimes the perception that is portrayed with this particular passage. And I've got to say just a, a straight 
straightforward reading of the text like we should be doing, right? We don't want to look for uh, unnecessary spiritual meanings. We want to take a, a normal understanding of the text. And with a normal understanding of the text, I can totally see how we can get to that understanding. It uh, lends itself to this kind of interpretation. But how does that interpretation of a, a hangry, capricious Jesus uh, match up with what we know about Jesus from the rest of Scripture? The, the two don't match, right? That's not how Jesus is. That's not his nature. That's not his character. That's not how he's revealed himself all the way up through this point. Ten and a half chapters up until this point, Jesus is the humble servant, right? He's the one who's touching the lepers. He's the one who's taking time out to uh, heal blind Bartimaeus. He's the one who uh, is allowing this woman to touch the fringe of his cloak and, and healing her and traveling to see this son or this daughter of uh, Jairus and, and raise her from the dead. He's not this uh, emotionally unstable person, right? And so let's just take a, a look at the text here, verses 12 through 14, and take inventory of what we know about uh, what's happening. What are some, some facts that we can see in these verses, 12 through 14? I'm making you guys do the work this morning. Mm-hmm. What do we see in, in 12 through 14? What are some facts we can glean from those verses? He was hungry. All right, good. He was hungry. And he had just left Bethany, right? What about in 13 and 14? What do we see there? He went to see if he could perhaps find things on the tree. Okay. And this tree is a tree that he saw beforehand from a distance, right? And it's a fig tree. And even though there's not any fruit on there, what is there on the tree? There are leaves on the tree, right? It's in leaf already. Uh, we know that this is Passover week, right? He's coming up to uh, his death, and it's the week where everybody's coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover that was established all the way back in Exodus, remembering what God did and bringing up his people out of Exodus. Uh, and then we also know from this passage that it was not the season for figs, which really begs this question, why was Jesus looking for them? What was he doing looking for figs when he, the godly universe, would know that it's not the season for figs? Well, I want to share with you this quote from uh, John MacArthur. He says, although the main fig harvest was in the late summer and fall, small but edible unripe figs appeared in spring about the time of Passover, before the leaves did. Since the tree in question had leaves, it would be expected to have figs. So again, just a, a straightforward reading. We're kind of left with a little bit of a question being 21st century Americans. We're like, what is going on? Why is Jesus looking for figs? Shouldn't he know better? But uh, there were these little buds that appeared prior to the figs being full grown. And apparently they're quite tasty um, from what I hear. I've never been there, never tried them, but uh, that's what I hear. And good old J. Mac left a couple of references there for us in Isaiah and Hosea and Micah. I want to show us the one from Isaiah and Micah. And we can see that there was a, a great desire for these figs that were like pre-season figs, these buds that came beforehand. So in Isaiah 28.4, it says that the fading flower 
of its glorious beauty, so starting in the middle of a, a sentence, obviously, the fading flower of a glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as he sees it is in his hand, he swallows it. So, again, there's a, a great desire for this. It's a tasty little snack, I guess, that's better than... Uh, other figs and this is out of season figs so uh, this last week well yeah lately we've had a lot of peaches in season right and I've had a lot of peaches at my house even though I don't have peaches I get peaches from some of you guys and I've probably had a dozen peaches this last week and and they're great but having a peach in January February it's even better right when it's you haven't had a dozen peaches in the last week I, that's seems to be what's going on here. Uh, Micah 7 verse 1 says, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig, which I crave. So there are other Old Testament references to these first ripe figs, these figs that come early in the season. That's what Jesus is looking for, hoping for, being hungry on his way from Bethany, uh, headed to back to the temple knowing that he has a big day ahead of him what he's got planned for the temple and he's hoping for this nice snack on the way and it's not there and then he goes on to curse this fig tree and so just in case you've forgotten who Jesus is uh, it wasn't unreasonable for Jesus to expect to find anything other than leaves on the fig tree Jesus is not an unreasonable, hangry, capricious man. Uh, he had reason to expect those figs to be there. Um, any other thoughts or questions at this point? Can you say something like, um, when he cursed the tree, let no fruit bear on you again because of that? Yes. So, like, should we take from that that, you know, he's kind of saying, like, we ought to bear fruit too? Since that didn't, what it even had would be taken away. Yeah, absolutely. Good job. That's always kind of like a. So. Yeah, good. Yeah, so one thing that we'll see going throughout this, I mentioned there are three different kind of sections to this, to what we're going to be covering today. There's Jesus uh, cursing the fig tree, going to the temple, then coming back, and they're looking at the results of the cursed fig tree. We should understand these things in a sequence. We should understand the, the fig tree story and the temple uh, dispersion and what Jesus does at the temple in harmony with one another. Matthew, in his account, he puts these two events back to back. He doesn't uh, kind of sandwich them like Mark does. We've talked before about the Markian sandwich and how he'll uh, like introduce one thing, go to a different story, and then he'll come back, just like he did with Jairus and his daughter and how that got interrupted by the hemorrhaging woman. He does the same thing here with the fig tree. And so that gives us a clue that we should understand those two series of events together. And um, so, yes, we should understand that what he's saying is you should be fruitful. That's his main point, um, both with in illustrating with the fig tree and in going and driving everybody out of the temple. He wants to see fruitfulness. Um, 
So yeah, Jesus is illustrating a lesson here uh, concerning Israel's judgment in a very Old Testament prophetic type of way. So he's getting ready to talk about Israel and how he is judging them and how he's going to judge them and what the consequences are of their rejecting their Messiah. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, you might remember, we looked at an, an Old Testament prophetic example in Jeremiah when we were talking about the cup of God's wrath. And in Jeremiah 25, remember that uh, God had Jeremiah take a, a cup and he was going around to all these different nations saying, here, drink from this cup, drink from this cup. And it was a picture of the wrath of God that was to come. This was uh, to demonstrate what God was doing. A couple of chapters after that, in Jeremiah 27, 28, uh, Jeremiah makes for himself a, a yoke, like what they would use with oxen. And he puts it around his neck and he walks around. He says that you, Israel, are going to be locked up. You're going to be enslaved to Babylon, just like I'm locked up and I'm enslaved right now. It was a, a picture to demonstrate what God had planned to do with them. We see a lot of this stuff in Ezekiel, too. These prophets uh, doing these weird things to portray to the nation what it is that God is doing to them or what it is that he has planned for them. In uh, Ezekiel 4, it talks about how God tells Ezekiel to lay down on his left side for 390 days. He's to lay there. He's like tied down, laying there. He has his food ready and he has preparations for what that's going to look like. And this is to uh, demonstrate one day of judgment for one year that Israel has sinned against their God. And then after that, he's to flip over on his right side and do the same thing on his right side for 40 days. It's a, a demonstration of the judgment to come. Uh, after that, he, he cuts off his hair. He cuts it into thirds. One third of the hair he burns. One third of the hair he like chops with a sword. And the other third he throws up in the, the air and it, it blows away. Again, this is just to demonstrate God's plan for Israel, what he's doing with them. And in a very similar way, we see Jesus cursing this fig tree. Again, in this very Old Testament prophetic type of way to show the coming judgment that he has planned for uh, not just the temple and not just... Um, individuals, but for the nation of Israel as a whole. Let me read to you this quote from John Grasmick. He says, this was a dramatic prophetic sign of God's impending judgment on Israel. The promising but unproductive fig tree symbolized Israel's spiritual barrenness, despite divine favor and the impressive outward appearance of their religion. So just like with the, the scribes and the Pharisees, on the outside, they look clean, right? The outside of the cup is, is clean, um, but the inside is filthy. The inside is dirty. The outside of this fig tree, from a distance, it had leaves. Because it had leaves, that should signify that it should have these tiny little buds that are ready to bear these pre-season figs. And Jesus got up there and he said, no, that's not cool, right? That's not what I was expecting. I was hungry. I wanted these figs. Uh, you're going to be cursed remembering all the time that this is an illustration of the outward holiness of Israel and Jesus saying, no, that's, that's not okay. Your outward holiness is not sufficient. God is not a man that he looks at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart and inwardly, you guys are a bunch of rotten tombs. You guys are a bunch of dead man's bones and he was ready to judge them. And the fig tree is picturing this same thing. Is that, making sense up to this point? All right. Well, then let's 
continue on with the way that Mark has a story laid out for us and look at the cleansing of the temple in verses 15 through 18. Could I get somebody to read that for us, please? Mark 11, 15 through 18. Who's got that? Thanks, Andy. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. Chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. All right. So remember that Jesus did this earlier at the very beginning of his ministry. John John sat down in John chapter 2, I think in chapter 2, about how he begins his ministry going into the temple and driving people out in a very similar way to this. And in the synoptic gospels, remember the gospels that are seeing things together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, we see this being mentioned again a second time at the end of his ministry. And also remember that the temple was separated into two main areas. You had the, the inner court, the temple proper, where the holy place was. And then you had the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were allowed to go. And these were two very separate areas. The outer court was huge. You could fit thousands and thousands of people inside of this area, inside of the temple. And during the time, during this time, the outer court came to be known as the Bazaar of Annas. Does anybody recognize that name, Annas? Who is Annas? High priest. (laughs) Yeah, he's the the high priest, right? Well, actually, he was the the former high priest, the one of the crooked high priests of Israel. Uh, He was the one who in John 18, as I put the reference there, he uh, took place in one of Jesus' mock trials, right? When Jesus went and stood before Annas and they supposedly were trying him and attempting to do things by the book, but it was all crooked, just a kangaroo court. Uh, Annas was there overseeing those procedures. And Caiaphas is his son-in-law, who is also crooked. And after Rome uh, got rid of Annas and deposed him. Uh, Caiaphas came and he took on the role of high priest and he oversaw these same temple procedures that Annas was overseeing. Can somebody summarize for me uh, an Old Testament understanding of what the temple was for? What was the temple designed to be used for? What was it designed to do? The temple was the the most holy place was the dwelling of God's glory amongst his people. Mm-hmm. And they offered sacrifices for sins. Okay. It would have been very bloody because there were sacrifices going, there all the, going on there all the time. It was the center of the Jewish nation and understanding of who God was. Is. Yes. Good. 
So yeah, that's where God's glory, well, it was centralized, right? Not that he's bound by these walls, even Solomon in building that realized uh, there's no building that can contain you, oh God. Um, but people would go there for offering of sacrifices for not only animal sacrifices, but grain offerings and fellowship offerings um, for guilt offerings. Half of Leviticus, more than half of Leviticus probably, is devoted to talking about what the temple is for, what is its usage, and how are things to uh, be done, and, and the operations that are to take place there. And uh, these two crooked high priests, Annas, who Again, the, the outer court became known as the bazaars of Annas. Uh, Annas and Caiaphas, they permitted vendors to come in and to set up shop in the court of the Gentiles in the, the temple area. They would come in and they would set up shop and have a kind of makeshift farmer's market type thing going on where uh, they would uh, produce trade with people. So there were three different types of coins that were being used in Israel at this time. They had their regular Jewish, Jewish coinage. They had uh, Roman coinage, right? Because Rome was the current power who was there over them. And then they still had some Greek coinage because Greek was the dominant power for hundreds of years before this. And so they had these three different coins that were being used all along. And back in Exodus 30, we read about a temple tax and how it was required that every person had to bring a temple tax of a half a shekel. Uh, for the, the poor person, the rich person, no matter who you are, everybody had to bring a half shekel. And it's very specific. It has to be a half shekel, which is kind of funny because that was like thousand years before and didn't account for inflation. Um, you go back even just a portion of time in our country and uh, you, you can't keep that same standard throughout years like they did back then, right? But they had this uh, half shekel temple tax that was required and vendors would come in seeking to take advantage of the people uh, and they would realize there's this requirement. Everybody has to pay this half shekel temple tax, but there are, are there are all of these three different kinds of coinage that are floating around, this Greek coinage and this Roman coinage that wasn't permitted. They had these uh, idolatrous images and symbols of man on their coins. They had to be traded in for shekels. And so they would set up their little shop and um, they would have kind of an impromptu uh, exchange table where they had these exchange shops and then they added surcharges to their exchange rates. Some people say uh, upwards of 25% or more that they were adding and just extracting from these people so that they could take the right temple tax and make their sacrifices. Uh, beyond that, there were other vendors who were selling animals. So remember you had to bring an animal to sacrifice. If you're traveling a long way, you're not gonna wanna carry that animal with you. You'll just go to the temple and buy an animal there. But remember, these guys are crooked, right? Jesus goes in, he disrupts these things for a reason because what they would do is even if he brought in a, a perfectly good animal, remember it has to be an animal that's without spot, without blemish, because that's how God ordained things because it's all pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect lamb who is without spot, without blemish, he has no sin. And so in order for these people to be able to sacrifice their animals, it had to be a, a worthy animal. You can't bring in a, a half-dying dog with a broken leg. It's not going to fly, right? And so <clears throat> these priests who were in charge of the temple, they would examine people's sacrifices or animals and perhaps say, oh, well, that's not going to cut it. That's not all right. I got one in the back I can sell you, but they would mark it up 
right? And sell it at a higher rate just to make money, um, taking advantage of these people. And uh, in verse 16, it says that he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. So it's very likely that there were also people who were coming through the temple courts and just kind of using it as a shortcut. This temple grounds, it was huge. It would take up a huge portion of the city. Again, you could fit thousands and thousands of people in there. And so people will use it as a shortcut just to kind of march through. I can get from this area of the city to this area of the city a lot quicker if I just go through the Gentile court uh, this area that I'm actually allowed in, and that's what they would do. And Jesus was not having this. He said, this is my father's house. This is a, a holy place. It's not just a place that you flippantly walk through um, as you're trying to get home or get to the shop or get to work. Um, they didn't have a, an understanding of the temple as a holy place, as a sacred place. And so Jesus went in, and he disrupted this defiling of the temple and um, these extortionary practices had become commonplace in the temple court. He was going in, he was flipping over tables, he was putting a stop to this. He wasn't happy at all with what was taking place in his father's house. And in doing this, Jesus was essentially laying claim to the temple. He was claiming uh, ownership of the temple, similar to how a, a landlord might come in and uh, make changes, make arrangements, be willing to kick out a, a, a tenant if they're not abiding by what they're supposed to be doing. In verse 17, it says, he began to teach them and to say, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So this is a, a quote from Isaiah 56, 7, which talks about the temple being a house of prayer, not just for Israel, but for all nations. That's why this court of the Gentiles existed, so that Gentiles, converts to Judaism in the Old Testament, they could come and they could have a place to worship. They could have a place to uh, bring their, their sacrifices and uh, pray to God and cry out to God. This was a house of prayer, not just for Jews, but for all nations. And remember that Mark is writing to all nations, right? He's writing to the Roman people. And so this would particularly pique their interest that, hey, this is not just a, a Jewish thing. This is something that is indeed for all nations. And it tells us in the, the next verse that the chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy them. They took particular offense at what Jesus was doing, what Jesus was saying, because they were the ones who were supposed to take charge over the temple. They were the ones who had been entrusted with the responsibility not to let this kind of foolishness go on. And yet they were allowing the temple to be used as a shortcut, to be used as uh, this crooked, wicked exchange place and place where people are being taken advantage of. Um, it's not a shop, and yet that's how it was being utilized by the people. And in fact, they took so much offense, not only at what Jesus was doing, but at the authority that he was wielding as he was doing it. Again, coming in as a landlord, and they're the tenants, and he's setting them straight, and they're not liking it. And um, they hated this so much, they sought to kill him. 
And did you catch the, the explicit reason that the text gives for why they wanted to kill Jesus? They were afraid. They were scared of Jesus, of his power and his influence and his authority. Um, the chief priests and scribes, those who were tasked with keeping order in the temple, feared Jesus and the influence that he had with the crowds. Uh, remember that these people who are a part of this crowd, this crowd that numbers likely in the thousands, they are the ones who are being taken advantage of. They're the ones who have been oppressed. And Jesus comes in, he's coming to their defense, right? He's saying, this isn't okay. You guys are taking advantage of these people. And now these people are right there. They're back in Jesus, right? He's already a popular man. He's coming in and he's telling these wicked authorities, you guys need to take a hike. And now they're seeing this great influence that Jesus has. And um, when I'm reading through this, I'll often ask myself, how is Jesus able to do this without anybody stopping him? But that's exactly how he is so popular and he's defending the, the masses. He's defending the people. And so nobody has the, the power or the authority, the ability to step up and to say something to stop him, even though he is um, in the temple and they are the ones who are supposedly in charge of the temple, these chief priests and scribes. Any thoughts or questions? The whole, you know, you think of the fear of the Lord. You think of they fearing, and I guess they feared more the people than they feared the Lord. I guess that was it. They feared more the people and his influence on the people. Yeah. Then, because, you know, you fear the Lord. That that opens a whole new world of wisdom and knowledge and Amen. understanding. But yeah, that kind of you know, just to think about okay, when I get a fear of Jesus, it's a good <laughs> thing for me. Yeah, but. yeah, but your heart has been changed, right? And they just had outward appearances change. That's what Jesus is trying to demonstrate with this whole thing. That outwardly they're okay, inwardly they need help, right? Um, and yeah, if, you, if they truly had a fear for the Lord, they would have never allowed this to go on in the first place. But uh, perhaps say they did, perhaps say they were just being foolish or whatever. If you have a disruption like that, you have the God in the flesh come in and throw up tables and say, this isn't okay, that's not what it's made for. Um, if they were at all repentant, if they had true repentance, then they would say, you know what? You're right. If it's just worldly sorrow, if they're just afraid, then they're not going to do that. They're not going to respond in a, a godly way. And clearly they didn't because they wanted to kill him. That was their response. It wasn't one of, I'm sorry, I need to honor God. They were much more worried about man than God. When I'm going through and, and studying this passage, I can't help but make comparisons to how the LDS church has done very similar things with their temples, right? They've taken the, the purpose for the temple and uh, really changed it all together. They've perverted the purpose of God's temple in the Old Testament, and they've built and established 315 temples. I looked that up this week uh, with a purpose that's contrary to the purpose of the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and they've 
participated in these extra biblical temple ceremonies and they've required them as part of their entrance into the, the highest kingdom. If you want to get into the celestial kingdom, then you need to be sealed in the temple. You need to take part in these temple rituals within the Latter-day Saint Church. And if you want to be blessed with a temple recommend by your bishop, then you need to be tithing regularly, right? And you need to be keeping the word of wisdom. If you're not keeping the word of wisdom, then you're not able to get into the temple. If you don't get sealed in the temple, you don't get to the highest heaven. And so it's very much a, a similar manipulation where they're playing on the, the emotional needs of these people. These people have a realization of they want to be before God and they want to be seen as accepted before God. And in order to do that, uh, the, the LDS church have come in and they said, these are the steps you have to do. These are the requirements, the extra requirements you have to do in order to be uh, pleasing to the Lord. Joseph, you have a thought? really interesting because me and Danielle were actually talking about these things like just this past week and uh, yeah it's like when you look at it and them requiring you to like pay your tithings as part of paying the temple recommends if you go to the temple yeah. seal the temple go to the highest kingdom you know you're really kind of like paying your way into their yeah. you know exalted place and yeah, and that's what the high priests were doing in the temple back here. They were saying, oh yeah, you can come in, you can sacrifice your animals, but you have to buy our kind of money. You have to use a shekel, and you have to pay more to do that. And then you have to use a certain animal, and you have to pay more to do that. They were uh, taking advantage of these people, using their desire to be holy and spiritual as a tool to manipulate them. Well, it goes over and over and over again. I mean, during the Reformation, yeah, yeah. Martin Luther came in and he said, no, none of that, right? Just like Jesus. Yeah, helping preachers today where they extort. It's craft is what it is. Yep. It's great. Yeah, and send me your your seed of faith, right? Your gift of $20 and I'll pray for you and I'll, I'll take this little handkerchief and I'll bless it and send it to you. And yeah, just taking advantage of people who have this desire to be right before God. Let me share with you this quote from the 1919 First Presidency letter that was sent to mission presidents. <clears throat> and it said that uh, letters of recommendation should be given only to those who have been members of the church at least a year and in good standing <clears throat> for one year to giving the recommend or prior to giving the recommend. It must be known that they keep the word of wisdom, pay their tithing and otherwise are good members. Each letter of recommendation should specify what particular blessing the person is recommended to receive. Again, it's just an extortion of money, manipulation of people based on their desire to be uh, right before God for their spiritual well-being and a perversion of the original design of the temple. Um, I, I absolutely love Mormons. I love Mormon people, but the system is... Uh, disgusting and grotesque and taking advantage of people and deceiving people and um, while I don't want to be just anti-Mormon, I want to be pro-Jesus I think that it's okay to point these things out, especially in a comparison like this where Jesus goes in he disrupts it, he says this is not okay and there are so many parallels between what Jesus did in this temple and or what the Jews were doing in this temple and what's going on in our world today. Yeah, Sam. 
just for the, the sake of clarification, when we're talking about this sort of thing, um, what somebody was to bring up, say, the, the Old Testament Levitical law about uh, bringing certain portions to God specifically, how are we supposed to compare, you know, what was brought into the temple in the Old Testament compared to how that's wrong compared to what a lot of these, these cults are doing, you know, LDS, uh, you have the Catholic Church, you have basically any religion that puts a gun in your head and says salvation is dependent on your gift. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there are a couple of issues at hand. So one, they're, they're adding to the Word of God, right? Because God had specifications for how they were to conduct themselves within the temple, and they're adding to the Word of God. And that's taking place in all these other false religions as well. Um, <clears throat> but just zo zooming in on the issue of what you're bringing into the temple um, and the purpose of the temple, the purpose of the temple is to point to Jesus. You look at Hebrews, and Jesus is the the fulfillment, right? All these things, the, the animals, the sacrifices, the temple, they're all just a shadow. And the blood of goats and bulls, it's not able to, to cover our sins, but the blood of Jesus is able to cover our sins. Um, that's what we need to focus on is the fact that Jesus has paid it all. There's nothing that we can do to, to earn that salvation or to add to that salvation. Um, is that answering your question or am I misunderstanding your question? <laughs> the question was more along the lines of comparing how it was in the Old Testament as far as like money that was brought into the temple versus how um, other other religions do basically the, the tithe, if you will. Oh. The tithe in the Old Testament versus the tithe now. Yeah, yeah. We don't have a, a New Testament command to tithe in Second Corinthians eight and nine. We just went through recently. It says to uh, to give with a joyful heart. The Lord loves a joyful giver. Um, we should give abundantly, but we're not tied to the Old Testament law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Is that? The signs of the New Testament, it was north of 25-30%. Yeah. And you added them up because it wasn't just a tithe. It was other expectations of the Jewish people. Yeah. yeah, it was about 23 and a third percent they would give on an annual basis. All right, I want to read for us 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Peter, again, who was giving his experiences to Mark as Mark was writing this down, Peter says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Uh, that's, that was a problem then, people being greedy and exploiting people and destroying people, and it's a problem today as well. Uh, a little bit before that, in 1 Peter 4.17, Peter said that it is time for judgment to begin, he says, with the household of God. Just as Jesus demonstrates here, this judgment is for all of Israel, but it begins with the temple. Um, the people who were people without a shepherd, we looked, I guess, several months ago now, at Ezekiel 34 and how they're described as these, these shepherdless people and how God is executing judgment on the shepherds. Um, the leaders of Israel, the shepherds of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, um, they were 
not leading the people in the way that they should go. And this allowed for uh, Jesus to come in and to desecrate the temple. And this was representative not just of his judgment on the temple, but on Israel as a whole, um, which leads to the destruction of the individual people. I'm up here pushing buttons. I shouldn't be pushing. Where am I going? All right. Well, let's wrap this up by looking at the return to the fig tree. Verses 19 through, I'll read through 22. <clears throat> says that when evening came, they would go out of the city. As, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw a fig tree, the fig tree, withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed was, has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Now, this is a little bit of an abrupt response from Jesus saying, have faith in God, when Peter says, look at the fig tree that you withered. Um, Matthew gives us a little bit of insight. In Matthew 21, 20, says that seeing this, the withered up fig tree, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And then Jesus answers and says, have faith in God. And he goes on, verse 23, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. All right. This is a, a great passage, a beautiful passage, and it's often, very often, uh, taken out of context by many to talk about how we can get whatever we want if we ask, if we pray. Um, we need to remember that Jesus has just illustrated the, the coming judgment of Israel and the using the fig tree analogy. He's gone in, he's cleansed out the temple of uh, these quote-unquote church-going people, right? These people who are nice and pretty on the outside, uh, but inwardly they're uh, ravenous wolves. They look like a fig tree um, from a distance, and then he gets up and he sees, okay, well, they actually don't have any fruit on them. And so now the disciples are pretty much missing this point altogether. Um, they're focusing on in on the miracle rather than on what the miracle was pointing to. Um, they're not worried about what is being demonstrated in this miracle, but instead they're wanting to know, well, how does this actually take place? And so Jesus has to spell it out for them a little bit. He has to shift their, their gaze back to the issue at hand. Like he says in verse 22, you need to have faith in God. That is the issue that's at hand. And as he's standing uh, on the Mount of Olives, near the Mount of Olives, uh, perhaps Jesus is gesturing toward this mountain, that this mountain, the Mount of Olives, um, as he's saying and explaining the, the faith of taking this mountain, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea, uh, gesturing not only to the mountain that he's standing on, but to the Dead Sea that's just 15 miles to the east, 
and using this as an example of our need to to call out to God, of our, our need to have faith in God. That's something that is completely impossible for man to do, something we can't do in our own strength, something they would realize, okay, I could never in a million years tell this mountain to go into the sea. And Jesus here is using uh, hyperbolic language to differentiate between God's abilities and man's abilities to say that this isn't something that you can do on your own. This is something that you must call out to God to do using uh, this picture that he's painting, this grandiose picture for his disciples, saying that trusting in man's power is impossible. You need to uh, look to the Messiah. Have faith in God, not in yourselves. Uh, Remember, they had just rejected the Messiah, having faith in their own understanding. And then we should also realize that this is a a beautiful promise. It's not a blank check. Um, It's modified immediately by verse 25 when he says, whenever you stand praying, you need to forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. So they are to forgive even as they've been forgiven, like we're told in John 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Um, in John 14, 13 through 15. We'll go ahead and look that up. Could I get somebody else to go to that passage in First John? So John 14, 13 through 15. This is in the upper room just a, a few days after Jesus gave this uh, illustration of the fig tree and he went in and uh, threw people out of the temple. John fourteen thirteen says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we have to realize that this promise that Jesus will do anything for us when we pray is amended by asking in his name. It's not just a a blank check that Jesus is going to do whatever we want. He's not a magic genie. But if we're asking in his name, then that will be done. That doesn't mean just adding that to the end of your prayer, but asking in accordance with what Jesus would have. Who has 1 John 5, 14 through 15? I got it. Thank you. says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. All right. So again, there we see that we need to ask in his will or in his name and according to his will. Uh, Beautiful promise, beautiful passage to believers, not a blank check. Jesus isn't a a magic genie. He's just going to give us whatever we want. He's trying to, to illustrate a point to these disciples that you need to actually have faith. He's giving them a design for how they're to function and carry themselves. Once he leaves, he's getting ready to leave. Within a week, he's going to go lacrosse and be gone, and they're going to be left on their own. He's telling them, when I'm gone, you guys need to go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, You can't just depend on me, rely on me anymore like you have been. And he'll get into that a little bit more in the upper room, and we will get to that a different day. If you have thoughts or questions, save them for next week because I'm over time. I'm sorry. I'll get you after, Joseph. All right, let's pray. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who carries us along. Let us not be like the the scribes and the the Pharisees, like the hypocrites who um, pervert your design for 
the world you're designed for us. Let us be soft and humble towards you. Amen.